Greetings to all of God's people. This is Mordecai Joseph. We're now in lesson 60. And in Ezekiel chapter 45 and verse 1, we will read, Moreover, when you divide the land by lot into inheritance, you shall set apart a district for the eternal, a holy section of the land. Its length shall be 25,000 cubits and the width 10,000. In other words, what we're going to read in the next uh, few scriptures is the description of a section of a land that God is going to call the holy uh, section. And it's going to be 25 by 25,000. And by the way, in another scripture we read that all the other uh, sections that are given to every tribe of Israel are going to be basically the same size, 25,000 by 25,000. So you multiply that by 12 and plus the holy portion, you got 13 there. And that'll give you the, the idea of the, the territory that is the initial one uh, that God is going to give to his people Israel. And uh, it's going to stretch ultimately from uh, the uh, river Euphrates which includes much of, uh, of uh, northern Iraq and then Syria, much of Syria, and then all of Lebanon and all the way down, uh, later on, into the Nile, where in Isaiah 15, as we read earlier, uh, five cities will, uh, will be speaking the land of Canaan. The reason is because they're going to be a part of the land of Canaan, the land of Israel, the land of the wife of God. And so they're going to be spread, you know, east and west and south in every direction, and the enemies of Israel are going to be friends of Israel. They are not going to mind at that time because God is going to speak and they will do what he says. There are going to be any arguments or any wars or any uh, contentions. This is my land, you know, and I'm going to go to the United Nations. There isn't going to be any United Nation, and no allies are going to come and help them. Because God is going to make sure that everybody knows that he is in charge and nobody is going to say nay to him. And so... Uh, this is basically what we read here. A portion, a holy portion that is given to the priesthood because at that time, in the coming of Christ, the coming of the Redeemer, the Messiah of Israel, the Levites and the priests are no longer going to be spread throughout all the tribes of Israel, but they are all going to be concentrated only in one section because now God is going to have a different administration in terms of doing his work to the entirety of the, of the whole earth. And it's not going to be only to Israel because now the whole nation is a holy royal priesthood is going to have a part in teaching finally what they were supposed to do all along from the beginning. They're going to teach the entirety of the, uh, the whole earth. And so this holy portion will include 10,000 by 25,000 of it that will be given to the priests. And the, the temple will be built right in the center of it. And then going to have another 10,000 cubic feet, which is every cubic uh, feet will be, uh, I think, uh, cubits or whatever, uh, will be uh, in Hebrew, it's Amma which is about 18 inches, some say it's 24 uh, inches, you know, the Ezekiel is 24 uh, inches, and uh, in other areas it's 18, so it's a debate between the two, which is which, whichever it may be, that's a portion of it. And so the next 10,000 by 25,000 will be given to the Levites, you can draw, a, uh, in essence, a, a square there and divide it, 10 by 25 for the priesthood in the center of the city of Jerusalem, I'm sorry, the, the temple, and then the next 10, by 25,000 will be for the Levites, and then for the next 5,000, remaining 5,000 by 25, all the tribes of Israel will, will be represented there, there will be representatives from all of them, and they're going to be called the workers of the city. And in the center of that portion, the city of Jerusalem is going to be built, and it's into that city that all the nations of the earth will come to hear the word of God, and the Israelites that will be there and the workers of the cities are going to be in charge of education of the entirety of the whole earth. You know, as representatives of all the children of Israel. 
And that's why you read the statement, For the Torah shall go forth out of Zion, where God would dwell, the Messiah, the Redeemer, the husband of Israel, and that's going to be from the temple in the center of the section of the priesthood, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, which is on the other side, it's got to be a few miles in between, it's a little distance between Jerusalem and the temple. Gonna to have to do a little traveling between the two. And as it is, God doesn't want the people, you know, all the nations of the earth to come to the temple. That's for the wife, that's for Israel, who will enter into, into, uh, this, into the temple to come before Him on the Sabbath and on the holidays and on the new moons and on the appointed seasons and whatever occasions that God is going to call upon the nation to appear before Him. And so this is the story of the first part of uh, chapter 45 and then verse 7 we read uh, the prince shall have a, a section that is the, the, the leader the physical leader it's not talking about David David doesn't need a piece of land you know in other words this, we're not talking about the spirit beings among the Israelites who are going to be working with Christ behind the scenes so to speak because they're not going to be visible unless they choose to appear before them which they will too but he's talking about the, the physical structure of the, uh, of the nation uh, the leader of Israel, the physical uh, leader of Israel, the prince, shall have a, a section on one side and the other of the holy district and the city's property. So it's going to have a section on one side of the, of the district, which is on the uh, on the other side of uh, the part of the Israel, and on the other side of Jerusalem, and then another portion on the other side of the section of the priests. You know, both sections. It's going to have well, that's the way God wants it. And so it's going to be in, in both sections there. And bordering on the holy district and the city's property. Extending westward on the west side and eastward on the east side. In other words, it's going to have a sort of a long street on both sides. And that's going to be for him. And uh, the land should be side by side with one of the tribal portions. From the west border to the east border. And all, all the, as I said, all the other tribes of Israel are going to receive the same amount of land, you know, the same portion, the same measurement, 25 by 25,000 for every tribe. Uh, mind you, that these are the remnants of Israel. And then as they expand and multiply, God says, you're going to, to go east and west. And uh, north and south, you're going to expand. This is not going to be the only land you're going to have. And verse 8, And the land shall be his possession in Israel, and my princes shall no more oppress my people, because they do today and have been doing it, since the days they chose a king for themselves, King Saul. As soon as he became king and got established, he began taking and taking and taking and taking, and the heavens stopped to this very moment, taking and taking from the people. And so God is speaking to the governments of, of, of Israel nowadays, and for that matter, all governments of the earth. He says, my princess shall no more oppress my people, because he's going to make sure that they don't. But they shall give the rest of the land to the hands of Israel. And according to their tribes, and especially many other nations, you know, nepotism, and, uh, and the ruler who is in charge, whoever takes over, that's why they want to be up there. You know, they, they take uh, whatever they can from the land, they give it to their own relatives. God says, you're not going to do it anymore. Verse 9, Thus says the eternal God, Enough, O princes of Israel, remove violence and plundering, execute justice and righteousness, because they don't. That's his verdict on government, the government of Israel. And stop dispossessing my people. You know, they pass all kind of laws. 
Sometimes before you die, they take it away from you. They call it zoning, you know, laws. Because they you know, want to give it to somebody they like. You know, gives them some contribution for being elected. And they've got all kinds of reasons. And then the IRS, whenever they have a chance, they'll take the land away from you. All kinds of reasons. And God says, you better stop doing that or else. As a matter of fact, he's not going to allow them to even to think to do it. And to put an end to it and says, you stop doing those things and instead you'd be execute justice and righteousness and stop dispossessing my people. They don't realize what they're doing, those leaders in government. And they too are going to pay that penalty without forgiveness until they've paid it in full for all that they've done to the children of Israel. And he says, you stop doing it, dispossessing my people, says the Lord God. That's what God says, you know, you don't need to go and fight the government and resist the government, as many in our own midst are doing it today, thinking it's up to them, where God says, you don't do it, vengeance is mine, I will repay. You go back and read what the you know, what James, the brother of Jesus Christ, said to the people of Israel, as he's writing to them, to the twelve tribes. He said, you've got all those people over there oppressing you, you don't resist them, he said. You let God, you know, take vengeance. Vengeance is mine, he's going to avenge you. Wait on him. Some people in our midst think they can take things into their own hands and resist the government. God says, don't do it. Wait for me. I'll do it for you. You know, you submit yourself and wait on me. That's how we also prove our loyalty to him, by obedience to government that is not righteous. And we certainly know that they are not righteous, and God says they are not righteous, and he's going to punish them for that. But he forbids us from resisting them. You know? In other words, unless the king has a command us to disobey the laws of God, that's a different issue. But as long as they don't, even though they oppress us with taxation and this and that and the other thing, you know, if it is uh, within the law that we can uh, fight them, that's fine, that's something else. That's not resisting the government. But if it is contrary to the law of God, we should not do it. As some people, you know, they get all those uh, weapons and they have the militias and going to fight the government. And bomb, you know, get government buildings and all that. God condemns that too. Verse 11. And uh, he says, They find the bath shall be of the same measure, so that the bath contains one-tenth of a homer, and they saw one-tenth of a homer. In other words, he's describing the way life is going to be in his kingdom. That's the kingdom he's talking and told his disciples. And they knew exactly what he was talking about. And he says, When you pray, you pray, Our Heavenly Father, Thy kingdom come. This is what they are praying for. Not the ethereal kingdom up in heaven, that for 2,000 years, unlearned have been praying for and will never get there. What a waste of life. 2,000 years. Waste of prayers. Nobody ever listens to those prayers. Nobody in heaven. What a shame. And so, verse 12, it says, The shekel shall be 20 gears, 20 shekels. You know, talk about the English money. They have their 20 pennies to, uh, to, to uh, shilling. You know, shekel, shilling. The shekel should be 20 giras, 20 shekels, 25 shekels, and 50, 15 shekels. You see everything? You see how God has already wrote everything in detail for his kingdom, for his government, for his bride, for his wife, for his people, and recorded it, and people don't even bother to read it. And they've got their own concept of what the kingdom is all about. What are they praying? No, no wonder why they don't pray with a whole being and heart for the kingdom of God to come. It's not real. It's ethereal to many people. Verse 13, this is the offering which you shall offer. You shall give one-sixth of an ephah from 
a homer of wheat and one-sixth of an ephah from a homer of barley, and so forth. You know, you can read all the rest. Lots of details about the coming kingdom. Then verse 17. Uh, well, actually, let's uh, read uh, verse 15. And one lamb shall be given from the flock of 200. You know, one, one, one lamb from a flock of 200. You got 200 to give only one lamb. From the rich pastures of Israel, this shall be for grain offerings, burnt offerings, and peace offerings to make atonement for them, says the eternal God. Uh, that means you got 200 sheep, you know, give one of them to the priest, and when, well, when there is a need to, it's going to offer it for an atonement for you. Verse 16, all the people of the land shall give this offering for the prince in Israel. Verse 17, then it shall be the prince's part to give burnt offerings, grain offerings, and drink offerings at the feasts. The new moons, the Sabbath, yes, the new moon was not done away with. And we have lost the knowledge and understanding what the new moon is all about. And for that matter, even in the Jewish community, because of the circumstances, they've done away with the new moon as a day of uh, Sabbath, day of rest. Because we live in a world that is, you know, we are in slavery. In essence, we're like in Egypt. And so, the commemorate of the day, I remember when I was a kid, you know, on the new moon, my father would come from work and uh, we'll have a service at night go outside and look at the moon and have special service and give thanks uh, to God and praise and uh, read of the law and sing songs to God. So, you know, we still kept it to the degree that we could, but it was not a day off as it used to be in the, in the days of old. Now, only the retired uh, religious Jews can do it. And uh, God is going to restore all these things. So, on the new moons, on the Sabbath, and uh, the appoint, all the appointed seasons of the house of Israel... House of Israel, that's the church. House of Israel, always remember that. I'm repeating it many times because we need to be brainwashed properly, deprogrammed and reprogrammed properly. And two, three scriptures are not going to do it. That's why it has to be a very thorough, as God calls it, by the washing of the word. That is going to wash us from all of our filthiness that comes from misinformation. And so he shall prepare his sin offering the grain offering, the burnt offering, and the peace offering to make atonement for the house of Israel, the church, the wife. It's still physical. Yes, having the Holy Spirit. That's still physical. Verse 18, Thus says the Lord God, In the first month, on the first day of the month, he shall take a young bull without blemish and cleanse the sanctuary. And the priest shall make some, shall take some of the, uh, the blood of the sin offering. So anyway, you look at the rest of the chapter and you see what God had in mind for his people, Israel, for his wife. And through Ezekiel, he's revealing all those things. And he caused it to be recorded. And he's speaking about later on, verse 21, in the first month of the 14th day of the month, you shall observe the Passover. Many of us are confused. Which day is it? Before, after, in between? And some people go a month later and confused about the calendar. God is not the author of confusion. Man is. Satan is. And we follow his line. And his teachings, and his spirit, without even realizing it. That's why many of us are confused. You know, we're among the brethren, we're all confused. We cannot all get together. And God is going to open our eyes so we can see it properly from his point of view. And people who do not know the whole story, they get confused. They don't know all the statements. So they go to the New Testament to find out when is the Passover. You don't go to the end of the story to find out when is the Passover. You go to Moses, the beginning of the story, when Christ spoke there first. And he established it forever. And he told Israel. And we're not going to go through it now. When we come back to the study of the law. 
We'll get to that point and then discuss it in detail. If God taught it, that's why he said, if you don't believe Moses, how are you going to believe me? In, verse, in chapter 46, we've got chapter 46 now. That says the Lord God, the gateway of the inner court that faces toward the east shall be shut six working days, but on the Sabbath it shall be opened, and on the day of the new moon it shall be opened. You know, this is the time when God is going to come through that gate. Verse 2, the prince shall enter by way of the vestibule, the gateway, from the outside of the stand, uh, that is, and stand by the gatepost. The priest shall prepare his burnt offering and his peace offerings. You see the direct uh, conversation there and the communication between God and the leader of Israel. At that time, the leader of his people. And he's speaking about a physical leader. And everything in Israel is going to be governed by God himself. It isn't going to be an invention of any man. And people, when they will hear the prince, they will know God just spoke. Just like it was in the days of Moses. Whatever Moses heard from God, this is a person that is going to be just like Moses. Whatever he hears from God, he delivers it to the people. Because now God is the king. God is the husband. God is the Lord. God is the bridegroom. He's going to rule his wife. That's what it says. God is the head of Christ. And Christ is the head of the woman. That is of the man. But since this is his wife, you know, he's the head of the woman. Yeah, that is his wife. He's the head of the body. So he's going to govern it in person. Through physical beings. And the prince shall enter by the way, and they're going to bring him an offering. The priests are going to bring his offering, and he's going to offer before God. And in the middle of the verse, he shall worship at the threshold of the gate. Then he shall go out, but the gate shall not be shut until the evening. So he comes sometimes uh, morning time brings the offering, uh, whatever the time is, and he's going to sit before God and uh, eat before God, discuss matters with God, and then he leaves, he goes home. But the gate's going to remain open until the rest of the evening. And likewise, the people of the land shall worship at the entrance. The people of the land, you see, the people of Israel, they are the ones who are coming to the temple, not the nations. The nations are the children. Children are not allowed, so to speak, into the bedroom of the husband and the wife. They don't belong there. And likewise, the people of the land shall worship at the entrance to this gateway before the eternal on the Sabbath and on the new moons. Obviously, on all the holidays, they're all Sabbaths. And the burnt offering that the prince shall offer, that it offers to the eternal, on the Sabbath day shall be six lambs without blemish and a ram without blemish. So where do we see the, you know, the sacrifices ever being done away with? Where did we get this idea? Because we don't understand scriptures and statements of Paul. That's where we get it from. We're unlearned. This is Jesus Christ speaking, giving instructions here in, in a virtual reality, so to speak, scenario before Ezekiel. When he is on this earth, ruling his people, ruling his bride, ruling his church, ruling the whole earth. Let's read the whole story. Instead of reading a little bit here and a little bit there and thinking we got the whole thing right. We don't. God says, you're in Babylon. You're confused. Come out of it. You cannot come out of it until you read his word, word for word. You know, God says, read my lips. Whatever I say, that's true. Verse 6, on the day of the new moon, it shall be a young bull without blemish. So you see, it was also a day of worship. And he shall prepare a grain offering, verse 7, or an ephah and a bull and so forth. And verse 8, when the prince enters, he shall go in by way of the vestibule, the gateway, and go out the same way. You know, come in through the same gate, go out through the same gate. But, listen to that, you know order in the temple, so there isn't going to be any confusion. But, when the people of the land come before the eternal on the appointed feast days, 
whoever enters by way of the north gate to worship shall go out by the way of the south gate. So you come from one side, you go the other way. You don't go back and you create commotion there. So see how God prepares every detail. And when you talk about the days of Ezekiel today, you're talking about 2,600 years. And you're talking about uh, 2.6 days. You're talking about 2.6 seconds as far as God is concerned. That's why it's a virtual reality for him, but only it is a real one of the God kind. We're not talking about 2,600 years. We're talking about a few seconds as far as God is concerned. That's why you can say it all in one breath in one scripture. And so you come through the north gate, you go out through the south gate. And whoever enters by the way of the south gate shall go out by the way of the north gate. And the priests are going to tell Israel, well, this is what God said and this is what we're going to do. And nobody's going to say, well, I'm going to do my own thing. I came from the north, I want to go back there because I left my kid there, whatever it may be. He says, no, you don't play this kind of games here. Everybody's obedient. You listen to orders. You obey. There's no grace without obedience. And God demands absolute obedience. Then he gives us absolute grace. He's not mocked otherwise as people think, well, he's going to give us grace and we don't need to obey him. We can hate his law. We can hate his Torah and say it's done away with. We can hate his sacrifices and say it's done away with. And God is going to give us grace. So these are liars. And the stench in his nostrils, as he said, you know. They're all abominations in my sight. And he shall not return by way of the gate through the, uh, the which he came, but shall go out through the opposite gate, verse 10, and the prince shall then be in their midst when they go in, and he shall go in, and when they go out, he shall go out. All together, it's one family, one people, one wife, one church. And they all obey one doctrine, one teaching, one Torah. And they all come to serve the husband. This is a marriage relationship. This is the intimacy of it. And only the wife is partaking in that. Not the others who are going to be the children from afar. Verse 11. They can come, but they'll come to Jerusalem and then listen to the word of God and go back home. Verse 11. At the festivals and at appointed feast days, the grain offering shall be in Ephraim and so forth. And then speaking by the, the prince, when he brings his own offering, he's going to bring his own offering. Not take it from somebody else. Yeah. And uh, because uh, to begin with, they already gave him uh, offerings, all the rest of Israel. And uh, verse 16, he says, Thus says eternal God, if the prince gives the gift of some of his inheritance to any of his sons, so we know it's a physical person, it shall belong to his sons. It is their possession by inheritance. But if he gives the gift of some of his inheritance to one of his servants, it shall be his until the year of liberty. So servants are not going to to get something for for you know, for perpetuity. In other words, only temporary. Everything will go back to the to the, the prince, that is to his descendants. And so there of liberty, that piece of land that he gave to the servant will go back to him, and after which it shall return to the prince, but his inheritance shall belong to his sons, it shall become theirs. And one of the false you know, one of the abominable doctrines in one in one sense that a lot of uh, so called churches do, they tell people that you got an inheritance and remember us in your will and your deeds and so when you die you give it to us not give it to your sons as God says that's the law not give it to us we want it so it's not only that they want your money while you're alive when you're dead you know they want the rest of it just like the governments of this earth just as covetous as they are now if a person wants to offer a free will offering that's his business 
But to create such a doctrine, such a teaching, and to promote it, that shows covetousness to the core. So God makes it very plain. Even when the prince gives it to one of his servants, it goes back to his son. This is where it belongs. 18. Moreover, the prince shall not take any of the people's inheritance by evicting them, as they always do to this very day, from their property. He shall provide an inheritance for his sons from his own property, so that none of my people, my wife, the members of my wife, may be scattered from his property. That's an abomination to God when that is done. And God is furious at those who do it. And so a lot of people out there, the parents say, you know, happen to be members of this church or that church. Could it be either the churches of God or any other church of this world? And one day they wake up and they've got nothing because their father was a religious nut or whatever it may be. And he gave it all to the church and now they're all destitute. And they've got nothing for themselves. Because you know, their parents didn't like them for whatever reason. And that's an abomination in the sight of God when God says, you give it to your sons. And so in verse, uh, the next of the verses, he continues to give some more instructions. We don't need to go through every single thing there. Let's go to chapter 47. And in chapter 47 we read, uh, by the way, let me just make a mention about circumcision, since I have, uh, I have it in my notes here. We went through it uh, earlier, and we read about circumcision, and as I mentioned, that Paul understood it, that when God called Abraham, the calling is what counted, and Abraham was not circumcised for 25 years, and yet when he was 99, God said, well, it's about time to get circumcised, because that's a part of the covenant, which means that just because the Gentiles that were called in his days into the church were not circumcised at the time, didn't mean that the teaching was not given to them, and then later on, as they came to a greater knowledge of the truth and had a background, you know, that when they had children, or even themselves, could be circumcised later on if they wanted to go all the way. Uh, but at that point, you know, it was given to them as an option, so to speak. And uh, we see what God thinks about it when he, when he called Moses. You know, Moses was circumcised because his, uh, his parents circumcised him before they gave him to Pharaoh, the daughter of Pharaoh. But later on, somehow, one of his sons was not circumcised for whatever reason. And so God called him, sent him on a commission, but on the way, when he was on the way to Egypt, God was going to kill him. And why? Because one of his sons was not circumcised. And so you read that, uh, you read that story in Exodus chapter 4 and verse 25, where his wife had to circumcise him. And that gives you an idea about the mind of God concerning this subject. And you know, for a period of time he can allow it. And then uh, when the children of Israel came out of Egypt, all those who came out of Egypt were circumcised, but all those who were born in the wilderness, you know, 40 years. The Israelites did not circumcise them. For whatever reason, they didn't. And God put up with it. And yet with that new covenant, and yet those kids that stood there before Mount Sinai, a lot of them, uh, were not circumcised. And yet the covenant was made with all of them. And then for 40 years, God, you know, made the covenant with them. And then he made the second covenant with the second generation which he brought into the land of Israel. And yet, before they were to enter the land, God told Joshua, you go and circumcise every single one of them. And he called it the reproach of Egypt. But they were not circumcised. And none of them was allowed to enter into the land until they were circumcised, because that was the wife of God, the people of God, the descendants of God, under the covenant of Abraham. And God said, and he swore, and he spoke by his own oath, by his own word, by his own name. 
Any person who doesn't get circumcised from Israel, from Israel, I'm not talking about the nations yet, is going to be cut off. God was not about to change his law. And he didn't change it in the, in the so-called New Testament either. For his people, for his wife. And to this very day, he hasn't done it. He says it's a perpetual, you know, perpetual uh, uh, command forever. A covenant forever. All those who are going to enter into this covenant, you know, are descendants of Abraham from his body. And Isaac and Jacob are going to be circumcised. So anyway, I just wanted to interject that because that's a part of the, of the teaching there in, in chapter 44. And in chapter 47, we read in verse 1, Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple toward the east, from the, for the front of the temple faced east, that is, toward the Dead Sea, and the water was flowing from under the right side of the temple south of the altar. Now, later on, we're going to read more about it, because when you come to uh, Zechariah, later on, uh, it's about, uh, from the time of Ezekiel, it's about 80 years later, 80, 90, maybe 100 years later, you know, a bit longer, in the days of Zechariah, anyway, when they came back to the land, God is giving him the same uh, vision also, but the river that is coming from under his throne, you know, where he's going to sit there in the midst of these people of Israel, his wife, and that's the kingdom. And then when you go to the book of Revelation, the end of the story, when all Israel becomes spiritual now, the whole earth becomes spiritual, the all spirit beings now, when the Father comes down with the heavenly Jerusalem, you're going to see the same scenario. You're going to read in chapter 22 of Revelation, verse 1, also by the river that comes out from under the throne of, the, of, the, of God and the Lamb. And so you see this continuity of the same church, of the same people, of the same doctrine, of the same story. There is no division between old and new. It's all one. What is old is the covenant. Old covenant, that's done away with. When Christ died, that's it. That old marriage is gone and buried. No more. Because that's what the law says. That doesn't mean that from now on he's going to marry somebody else. No, he said, the reason why he came to die is so he can atone for the sins of his wife and now remarry her under new conditions. People forgot that. He's going to make a new covenant. The New Testament is with the house of Israel and the house of... Not with the house of China, or Poland, or any other nation on the face of the earth. Again, his people, his wife. Let's read the scriptures and believe what we read. Instead of the lies that people tell us, and then we have blinders and And when we read the scriptures, we can't even see them. And so in verse 2, And he brought me out of the way of the north gate, and led me around on the outside to the outer gateway that faces east, and there was water running out on the right side. And when the men went out, that is the angel that takes him on the speak of the city. You see, all those things are sort of virtual realities. It's sort of experiencing it, and it's still a vision. And yet it's real while he goes through it. Just like, you know, when you have a dream, you know, in your dream, it's real. It seems to be real. Only here, God, God can create reality. And, uh, and so we read about the river here and the story of it. And then you continue uh, uh, the rest of the story. And uh, the water reaches the Dead Sea on one hand. On the other hand, it reaches the Mediterranean, verse 9. And uh, it shall be that every living thing that moves wherever the rivers go will live. In other words, it's going to be life there because the Dead Sea, you know, is dead. Nothing lives there. But now when the water reaches the Dead Sea, going to give life to it. There are going to be fish there that God is going to create and put there. And there will be a very great multitude of fish because these waters 
Go there, for they will be healed. That is, they, they, you know, the water of the Dead Sea. And everything will live wherever the river goes. It shall be that fishermen will stand Babylon and Gedi to Enagline. This is the kingdom of God, Israel. That's the real kingdom of God, thy kingdom come that we pray for. And the children of Israel are the children of the kingdom. As Christ always called them children of the kingdom. And yet he said, on the other hand, some children of the kingdom, because they are disobedient and would not repent, well, they are not going to be there because they are not respecter of persons. So people think, well, he totally rejected the whole, you know, the whole community of Israel, the children of the kingdom. No, he did not. Only the few of them. As Paul said, what his son didn't believe. He didn't say all of them. He said what his son didn't believe. You know, the rest were coming all along, generation after generation. You know, and God is not done with them yet. And he saw it's going to heal the, the sea, and it shall be, in verse 10, that the fishermen will send by it from Engedi to Enaglaim, and there, shall be, there will be places for spreading their nets, and other fish will be of the same kinds of fish, and of the great sea exceedingly many. And that's good, bad news for vegetarians who think that uh, nobody should eat any meat, neither fish, nor this and that. Well, God says it's okay. Yes, there was a time when nobody ate it, you know. But uh, when God made it okay, it's okay. And in the kingdom, everybody's going to eat fish and meat. And the vegetarians are not going to be weak in the faith anymore and thinking and think of their righteous. They're not. You know, in other words, not in this point. This is not right. It's just because of weakness, you know, something happened in their past, traumatic experience and emotion. God says, okay, I can put up with it. I'm not going to force you to eat it if you don't feel like it, but at least don't call it unrighteous. And then condemn those who eat it. And verse 11, but it's swans and marshes. In other words, you know, this, there are going to be fish there, and their fish will be uh, of the same kind. That's verse 10. As the fish of the great sea, speaking about the Mediterranean, exceedingly many. There going to be a lot of fish in the Dead Sea. And there's going to be a lot of lakes in Israel, a lot of water, a lot of rivers, a lot of whales. It's not going to be the land that it is today. It's going to be paradise, Garden of Eden. This is the Garden of Eden. You know, they just talk about going to the Garden of Eden when you die. That's because I've been blinded, thinking it is an ethereal out there, you know. Got it from the Egyptians and the Babylonians. And the Catholics, you know, spread it throughout the whole earth. Because they brought it from their own background, Babylon, and Egypt, and Persia, and everything else, and Greece. And all those lies spread and became truth, the so-called Christianity. And we don't mind being called by that name, instead of looking at it from God's point of view, that he calls it an abomination. You know, if we are the people of God, we should be using terminology of God. And verse 11, but its swamps and marshes will not be healed, and they will be given over to salt. So God is still going to allow part of it to be salt, because there is a healing in, in the salt, so... I think God is giving us in the details here about his kingdom. And people reject it. They get their own ideas. And they think, well, God rejected his people. And he chose us. How foolish it can be. Verse 12. Along the bank of the river on this side and that will grow all kinds of trees used for food. And their leaves will not wither and their fruit will not fail. They will bear fruit every month because their water flows from the sanctuary. That is where Christ is, where God is, where the Redeemer is. And their fruit will be for food, and their leaves for medicine, as you read later on in Revelation, the end of the story. Well, those things also are going to be there, and there it is, and their leaves will be for the healing of the nations. It's one story. There's no division between the two. And even in the day when, uh, when uh, the God and the Lamb will be here in heaven and Jerusalem and all that, the story goes on. 
And doesn't he tell us so we're still going to find out in the future? We don't know and comprehend everything yet. Verse 13, thus says the eternal God, These are the borders by which you shall divide the land as an inheritance among the twelve tribes of Israel. Joseph shall have two portions, as I mentioned much earlier. The law of the birthright is that the firstborn has two portions. Not that he gets 90% and the rest get only 10% that is left over. No, no, it doesn't work that way. Joseph is going to have two portions. So if every tribe is going to have a portion, Joseph is going to have an extra one because there is a tribe in Manasseh. And they were uh, both were adopted by Jacob. You know, he wasn't replacing uh, Reuben and uh, Simeon. He was just adopt, adopting them, just like Reuben was firstborn. So Joseph was also a firstborn. But uh, he was passing that firstborn to Ephraim, and Ephraim and Manasseh, and he shall inherit it equally, equally, with one another. See, everybody's going to have an equal land. For I raised my hand in an oath to give it to your fathers. I raised it, in, you know, in an oath to give it to your fathers. When did he ever do away with that oath? People call God a liar. He doesn't keep his promises. He rejected his people. You see the blasphemy in all these statements? I raised my hand in an oath to give it to your fathers, and this land shall fall to you as your inheritance. He never rejected his people. He never picked up so-called the church and put down Israel. Never. And let God be true, as Paul said, and every man a liar who says otherwise. And this shall be the border of the land of the north, from the great sea to the, you know, and then you have the borders of the land. And he read to the end of the story. And all the tribes of Israel are going to be settled in their own land. And each one is going to have a part of it. And uh, then it gives you the, the, the order in which the tribes are going to be settled. Chapter 48. Now these are the names of the tribes from the northern border along the road to Hetlon at the entrance of Hamad. That's way up there. To Hazar and Nan in the border of Damascus. So, you know, you're seeing much of the part of, uh, of northern uh, of Syria, of northern Babylon. Ancient Babylon is going to go back to the inheritors, the rightful inheritors, which today... For the life of them, they cannot even conceive of them, you know, those people who live in that place. You know, they're fighting over a tiny little piece, the Golan Heights. And they don't realize that the entirety of their land, majority of it, is going to go to back to the children of Israel. What a horror of horrors. And so Dan is going to be there. In ancient times, the portion of Dan went up to the north, and so God is going to put all the Irish people up there, way up there, in a beautiful area, in the north where the forefathers used to be. And right next to them is going to put Asher. The British aren't going to be next to them anymore because they weren't getting along for quite a while. And uh, God is going to separate between these two uh, tribes of Israel, these peoples of Israel, the Irish and the British. Ephraimites, English people, well, modern terms. They're going to go back to the old terms. And generation later on, nobody would remember what they were before that. And no more than many uh, who came to this land and, you know, two, three generations later who remember where they came from. They all think of themselves as Americans. So, all the children of Israel are going to call themselves uh, by the name that they used to be to begin with. They'll say, I'm a Danite, I'm a Naphtalite, I'm an Asherite, I'm this and I'm that. We're all Israelites. That's a new world, you know, a new world order. And uh, so, we're going to read uh, the rest of the chapter like that. The division, the districts, and all those things that God is going to, going to give to him and to the, and to the priest, in verse 10, and this, and to this, to the priest, the holy district, that's what it's called, shall belong on the north 25,000 cubits, 
uh, length, and on the way is 10,000, that's for the priests, and then, you know, 20, uh, 10 by 25 for the Levites, and then for the children of Israel. And so the story goes on, telling you about the, 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 the land, about the tribes, about the city of Jerusalem, about the job of those tribes, and uh, then we're reading, and verse 35, we're going to end up with the book of Ezekiel by reading this, and all the way around shall be 18,000 cubits, and the name of the city, speaking about Jerusalem, from that day shall be the Lord of Jehovah is there. Jehovah, or Jehovah, some say, but Jehovah, actually, Jehovah Sham, or Jehovah Shama. The Lord is there. That's going to be the new name of the city. You know, you heard about the new, uh, the new name, the new name of the city, we're going to be called by the new name of the city, and so forth. That's going to be the name of uh, the city, Jehovah there, uh, because it's going to be there. You know, not that he's going to be there in person, because he's going to be in the, in the temple in Zion, but he's going to be in the midst of his people, in the midst of his wife. And that's the story of, uh, of Ezekiel. So let's continue now to uh, Daniel, where we continue the story. And in Daniel, we're going to ju- jump to chapter 9 and uh, verse 19. And we read a specific, because our subject in specific, for emphasis, uh, is uh, the true identity of the Church of Israel, of the Church of God, of the wife of God, the bride of the Lamb. In chapter 9 and verse 19 we read, And Daniel was invited in Babylon, mind you, and so was Ezekiel, and the time would come where all of Israel will no longer be in Babylon, either physically or spiritually. And so, in, while in Babylon, he's praying for his city, he's praying for his people, and he's asking God, to uh, to hear his prayer, and he's acknowledging the sins of his people, and he's acknowledging the fact that they all sinned against him, as you can read uh, from uh, actually from the almost the beginning of the chapter. And I'm not going to read the whole thing. <clears throat> you can read it yourself. In verse three, that's when he began his supplication, fasting, and then before the verse four begins the prayer. But in Verse 19, he ends up the prayer by saying, O Eternal, hear, O Eternal, that is, Jehovah, O Jehovah, and forgive, O Eternal, O Jehovah. In other words, you see, in the days of Daniel, even beyond that, they were still calling upon the name of Jehovah. They didn't say it was blasphemy, that came later, much later. Several hundred, you know, years later by, by the rabbis. And so he said, O Jehovah, Hear, O Jehovah, forgive, O Jehovah, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, as God said earlier. It's not for your sake that I do it, but for my sake. My God, for your city and your people who are called by your name. And that's the issue. Who and what are the true church of God? The people in the city. That's why in the book of Revelation you read, when the angel says, come, I'll show you the bride of the Lamb, and he shows him the holy city. People say, well, how can the holy city be the bride? Because that's symbolic of the nation. That's what Paul was saying. Heaven and Jerusalem are the mother of us all. You put the whole story together, then you begin to see it. Probably, at least in a much greater light and way than you were before that. And even then, there's still a lot of things that are missing. That God is going to reveal to us as time goes by. And then, uh, let's continue in verse 24. Uh, where we read about the 70 weeks prophecy. Well, you know, the angel came to him, uh, Gabriel, and gave him the 70 weeks prophecy. 
And he's telling him basically there that the Messiah is coming to his people, is going to atone for the city, is going to atone for the people, is going to give his life for them, is going to be cut off. You know, in plain words, verse 26, and after the 62 weeks, the Messiah shall be cut off. And all just can read it. Unfortunately, it's in the Aramaic, and so people don't, don't read it. But it's there. The Messiah was going to be killed. They killed him, their own Messiah. And the nations helped with it, the Romans, who did the actual crucifixion. But the whole nation was involved. All the world was involved. All of humanity is involved. We all killed him by our own sins and iniquities and transgression. And yet, the reason why he died is so he can take his wife back to himself under a new covenant this time. So he can die to the old marriage and remarry his wife under the new covenant, the new marriage. And that's basically what we read here. And so we continue the story now in chapter 10. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, whose name was called Belshazzar. The message was true, but the appointed time was long. You know, it was 2,500 years. And he understood the message and had understanding of the vision. And in those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. So he was uh, praying to God in mourning and asking God uh, to reveal to him the future of his people. He wanted to know very, very much. And so in verse 14, uh, Angel comes to him, Gabriel comes to him, and he tells him, uh, Now I have come to you to make you, that is, I have come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days. You know, God was never forsaking his people. For the vision refers to many days yet to come. And when he had spoken such words to me, I turned my face toward the ground and became speechless. And then the angel was going to continue to tell him, you know, what was going to happen in the last day. And he tells him about the long prophecy, and it's already in chapter 11. And at this point, we shall stop and say greetings to all of God's people. Until next time, this is Mordecai Joseph. The preceding message was taken from the World Wide Website at address www.biblestudy.org. This site is sponsored by Barnabas Ministries. Bible Study. You have questions? The Bible has answers.